for midnight sky to burn. Thanks for tuning in to Empower Outdoors Podcast. I'm Allie Dutin. And I'm your co-host, Phil Stepp. We are super pumped to have special guest here, Alex Comstock, joining us today. Alex has a blog called Whitetail DNA, where, as the name says, he focuses on whitetail. Majority of his content is about whitetail hunting. So he's also an outdoor writer who's had pieces published in Bowhunter, QDMA, and North American Whitetail Magazine. So welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm pretty pumped to be here. So I'm excited to dig into talking about whitetail. Uh, archery season is opening soon for some states. Uh, but before we get into that, tell us a little bit about your passion, really, that started for whitetail hunting. Yeah, so for me, whitetail hunting started at, you know, kind of the classic going out with your dad for rifle camp. Um, we would go out opening weekend, that'd be about it, wouldn't see any deer. And then when I got to be about 15, um, we I started going to a different deer camp with my good friends uh, because my dad kind of phased out of deer hunting he's more into the whole bird hunting thing um and so one of the guys that runs a deer camp was a big bow hunter and he got me into bow hunting and then once i started bow hunting it just kind of lit a fire under me i mean the first deer i ever shot in my life was with a bow and it was from a ground blind it was just a small doe at like 10 yards and it was it was like the coolest thing i'd ever done in my life i thought and then from there it just it just kind of took off yeah, I I had a similar kind of experience. My first deer I ever shot was with my bow as well. So mine was with a gun. You're, yeah, but it was a similar type of experience with a gun. Back when I first started hunting, there were no deer in northern Minnesota, yeah. and our family camp was north of Ashwalk. I didn't see a deer until I was 15 years old, and I shot I shot a spike the last day of the season in 1999. So we we had a few other questions. Obviously, you do a lot of hunting in North Dakota. Um, do you typically go on public land, private land? How do you hunt usually out there? Yeah, so in North Dakota, it's about 95% public land. So that's kind of what I focus on out there. Where do you map out how to you know hunt that public land? So for me, it all starts, I use Onyx Maps. Um, it's kind of like my number one tool in my phone. And it shows you really nicely all the public and private um, properties and it gives you the property boundaries and for private it gives you the info and in North Dakota there's a lot of different kind of public lands there's you know WMAs and there's plot land which is actually private land open to sportsmen it's when landowners sign up their property and enroll into this system where they pretty much let people hunt there and so there's a ton of public and so I pick an area first and then once I pick a general area is when I start looking for the actual properties and I'm always looking for the overlooked stuff. But I'm looking for spots that look really good on a map, and then I immediately cross those off because if I'm in a spot where there's a lot of people hunting, I don't want to be where anyone else is. And then when it comes to private, it can be tricky, but I just do a lot of door knocking, and that seems to work the best for me. So earlier on this season when we talked about door knocking, um, Allie and I, we're talking about literally getting on the ground, walking around, and, and knocking on doors. And Alex just confirmed that there still is a lot of room to knock on a door. You know, face-to-face contact goes a long way. And uh, tell us a little bit about your success with door knocking. I mean, um, you know, kind of percentages, how often people actually talk to you versus letting you hunt. So when it comes to door knocking and getting in private land, I mean, you need to be okay with people telling you no. Because no matter where you go, most often people are going to tell you no. But... You gotta do, there are a lot of things you can do that will give you a better chance. I mean, my number one rule is I don't show up wearing camo. 
because there's going to be people that it just immediately turns off. So I always want to just look presentable. Not like I'm going to look like I'm going to church or anything, but as long as I'm presentable, clean vehicle is what I kind of stick to. And then I just, I pretty much depend, my best, I mean, if you have time, the best ways I've found is to do it in the spring. So I always start out with, hey, would you care if I walk around your property looking for deer antlers? That's where I usually start with. If I can get on that and then create a relationship with the landowner and I'll stop in and talk to him as much as I can. And then maybe in the summer, stop back and then ask if I can hunt. And then if you do get permission, keeping it, it's all about being, you know, pretty much just a good person. It's um, offering venison to the landowner. It's asking if they need any help with anything. I mean, I've traded work for permission, whether that be actually one of the landowners out in North Dakota had me post all of his property, which it worked well for me because it's posted. So, so there's a lot of things you can do, but what you, what you said, just face to face contact and people really do appreciate that. Yeah. I've like, we talked about in a previous episode, it does seem intimidating, but I guess if you go about it in the right way, I don't see why you would have a problem. I mean, what is it? What is your success rate in getting, in gaining access? How many people do you ask versus how many people say yes? I mean, usually I'll make a list if I'm going to go out to a certain spot and my goal is just to get permission on private, I'll probably have a list of 10 to 15 spots and might get one to two yeses. But the more you keep going at it, you're going to eventually get, you only need a few spots and once you get them, then you got them. Do you just tell them like the dates you'll be there kind of thing or just keep open communication? Yeah, I approach it a, a few different ways. Like I just got permission on private actually here around here locally the other day. And the way I talked to the landowner, I said, you know, I can check in, tell you exactly when I'm going to be here, when I'm coming to check trail cameras, whatever, or I can make it so you pretty much never even know I'm here. You know, I can park off, whether it be down the road and just slip in and out, never know I'm here. And so if the landowner has an option, it kind of makes them more, could make them feel more comfortable with you. I know you just said you have just gained access to some private land in Minnesota. Have you been hunting a lot in public land Minnesota yeah so I do public land in Minnesota too so I'm actually you know part of a city hunt and so it's public land within the city um, so you kind of get assigned areas but I still hunt like big woods public land that's you know way out of town and stuff and a lot of the same rules apply I just try to get as far away from people as possible it's kind of my number one rule I actually started hunting the uh, Hermantown bow hunt before there was a Duluth city hunt and uh, my first year, I think there was 19 people in the Hermantown city hunt, and it was great. Well, I did Hermantown last year, the year before, and there was like 30. But oh, that's it. Yeah, because okay. I was, I think I was like number 22 or something, and that was right before season. Huh. So, but don't go there. Just kidding. You can <laughs> whatever. There's not really Hermantown doesn't have any big box at all. <laughs> Neither does Duluth. <laughs> Nope. There's no, actually, there's no big box in city limits anywhere. So, Actually, in all seriousness, it, city hunt is a good option for, you know, people who are just getting into it, especially because you can, you know, I, with the Duluth city hunt, there's a few steps you have to take. Talk about that. What are the steps you have to take to do a city hunt like that? Yeah. So you got to, you know, apply online. You have to do a proficiency test, you know, just to show that you're an adequate shooter. Um, and then you got to go to an orientation, you got to go to a lottery night. So there are a lot of hoops to jump through, but definitely can be no matter where you live, there's a, more and more cities are doing it now, you know, in these urban areas where deer are, you know, creating problems and, and it can be really 
convenient too because like for example out in north dakota a lot of my spots i'm walking a mile to a mile and a half to a stand and so when i'm going out to check trail cameras or anything it's it's a long process here you can you know stop somewhere run in check a camera hang a stand and be back to your truck in 20 minutes half hour and so the the same thing goes when you're actually hunting it's just can be very convenient for somebody to learn to hunt in a situation like that where it's a little more controlled well and at least i know in hermantown it's like earn a buck so you have to shoot a doe first and you know that kind of thing so you do get more venison out of the deal if you continue to hunt there so yeah, and the main the whole main purpose of it is to control the population within the city uh, for those of you who don't know this area very well duluth and hermantown both have a quite a bit of wooded areas that hold a lot of deer and cause a lot of automobile conflicts mm-hmm. throughout the year so the hermantown and duluth city hunts have really um, knocked down the um, on the amount of automobile accidents due to deer so right. i mean and there's other cities out there that you know also do similar similar stuff so um the next question I was thinking about, you just posted a blog recently about mobile hunting. Um, obviously, that's a method that maybe isn't for everyone, but um, what have you found success with that method, or what's the benefit of doing that versus you know other hunting methods? So when it comes to mobile hunting, I think an issue that a lot of people have is pretty much they have their kind of their go-to spot. Maybe they shot a buck there six years ago, and so they're kind of just glued to that tree and things aren't always that that way where it's going to stay great every single year um deer patterns are though deer are very habitual and do similar things year to year they're always things are kind of ever so slightly shifting whether that because if you're in an area of crop rotations or the clear cut happens or anything like that and so with a with a mobile setup you know what people like to call a running gun setup or a hanging hunt you go in with a stand on your back and your sticks and you hang your stand you hunt and you pull it down and so what it allows people to do is you can pick a spot on a map go check it out and you can bounce around to a lot of areas and there's a lot of times where i'll run and gun and then i'll find a really good spot and then i'll hang a stand there so i don't have to keep running and gunning there for the rest of the year but it allows you to see more places and you know a lot of times your first spot into a place can be your best chance at a mature buck and so running and gunning i'd say is for if you're just out there to deer hunt you know it's a little different but if you're after mature bucks i think it can really play a benefit to you so i've never called it running and gunning but um you know it totally makes sense in 2016 um i hunted three spots my, my child was born hank was born in march of 2016 i had super limited amount of time to scout other than google maps and i hunted public land for all three of my spots wisconsin bow uh, minnesota rifle wisconsin rifle and i hunted three days and i shot three bucks by carrying in a stand that morning, hanging it where I'd scouted on Google Maps, not even gone to the spots. This is no exaggeration. Um, looked up, you know, where I was going to go, found some, like, natural funnels, went in there that morning, and I had a buck down within an hour in Minnesota rifle, within two hours in Wisconsin rifle, and that evening in Wisconsin bow. So it definitely does work. They weren't the biggest bucks, but I wasn't out that year to get, you know, 150 inch white tails so and that's a good point because a lot of people's issues is they pick a spot whether it be in the spring or the summer they hang a trail camera they check the crap out of the camera all summer and then they come in there to hunt the stand and by then they've been in and out in and out in and out a million times and all they've done is just they might have ruined it or they might have just even pushed a mature buck out enough to the point where it's not going to be as good but if you pre-scout a bunch of spots like phil was just saying and then you just head right in there i mean and what a lot of times i'll do as well is i'll 
I'll hang a stand in the spring, clear out the tree, mark it, and then I might might or might not come back in the fall. But if you do that way, it's all ready. But, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Do you ever dump minerals in the spring when you go out there and scout the spot out? Definitely, I definitely eat a lot, of, especially out. And you got to, you know, wherever it's legal or not. But, like, in North Dakota, I mean, I've got some mineral sites that I'll establish in the spring. You run them through all summer on cameras. And then what's interesting about North Dakota is, you know, it opens so early. This year it's August 31st. You can actually hunt based on those summer patterns and with mineral sites and whatnot. So let's talk about minerals real quick, Alex. Um I, I've always been a guy, I've mixed my own minerals, and I have a recipe that I stick to. Um, it's one part dical, one part uh, stock salt, and then two parts um, some other kind of salt. Trace mineral? Two parts trace mineral, mineral. Thanks, Alex, for that. But anyways, I dumped that out. It comes out to 200 pounds per spot. Um, what do you prefer to do? Do you add anything in there, or do you prefer a block method, or, or what do you do to get a spot established? Yeah, so I think it all depends on your situation. If you got a spot like um, where you can be hauling it in on an ATV or something like that or got private, um, I think that looks, works really great. I mean, in North Dakota, a couple of years ago, I was same exact recipe I was making out there. But the problem was a lot of the spots I can't drive to, and so I was hauling in just stupid amounts, long ways. And then I kind of got lazy, and I've turned to just the blocks or the you know the bags. Like I'm trying a bunch of different stuff this year, and so... I think it's all dependent on the situation, but if you have the ability to mix your own and have it get those established in the spring, and then those can be good. I mean, really, if you keep them up year-round, I mean, year after year, and you can get those things really established, then that can be a, a really good method. Let's talk about new hunters, right, or people who are less experienced whitetail hunters. Obviously, we've all been sharing quite a bit of knowledge, um, but what would you think would be like two pieces of advice, or one, one to two, um, that would maybe help someone who's less experienced with whitetail potentially have success. So the first one is going to be kind of directed towards more towards bow hunters, but um, it would be to get really comfortable with your bow and shoot a lot because I see so many people nowadays with the technology, right? You can go up, pick up a bow, shoot it for half hour in an archery shop, get a sight, all that good stuff, and you're more or less dialed. And then and so someone will do that, and then they won't shoot all summer and they'll go out and it's, I mean, you know, so you really, I think to be comfortable with your bow because especially for a new hunter, if they've never, um, shot a deer with their bow, you can't replicate that feeling of when you're drawn back on a deer. And when that moment happens, you're going to fall back on what you know. And the more you've practiced, the more comfortable you're going to be. And you're just going to fall right into what you've been doing and you'll be way more apt to make a good shot. Um, and then another piece of advice for new hunters would be just to consume as much information as you can. In this day and age, there's so much media and, I mean, YouTube channels. And, I mean, I could list off a whole bunch that are great. And there's so much content out there. And for people that say that they, you know, they don't know how to shoot big bucks if that's what they want or they don't know how to find deer, I mean, there's so much out there where you can sit down for a full day and consume, you know. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would have been like for people before hunting media was even a thing like in my time you tried yeah <laughs> i still shot big bucks <laughs> then it required a lot more work though right i mean you needed to get out and but boots on the ground way more and so now a new hunter it's so much easier with the technology with bows and to get out there and you practice and then consume all the media you can and then a, and then take that and try to tailor it to your situation and that i mean i could fall into 
another little caveat is that so many people will watch maybe a show that's based out of Iowa that they're hunting, you know, and they're hunting northern Wisconsin where practically everything they watch isn't going to apply. So there's enough content out there, though, where there's people doing it everywhere. I mean, I know people that are producing whitetail content down in Florida that are down there hunting right now. And so if you can find the content that is tailored towards your situation and then try to go out and apply that, I mean, I think that's a great thing to do. You mentioned about shooting your bow or whatever and getting comfortable with it. I think another point to that is shooting how you're going to be hunting, which I don't think some people think about. Like if you just shoot that, you know, a few times and right before you go out, maybe you're you're going to be shooting in a blind. Well, you should practice sitting or shooting through that blind or whatnot. So that's another thing that, or shooting from the stand, actually go up into a stand or on a, you know, higher platform or whatnot and shoot at a target or something. But and when you guys are talking about shooting, you know, you, you look back to like sports. We all played sports here. Uh, muscle memory is is huge. When you're, you know, it's like shooting free throws. And ask, you know, our old coaches. I wasn't the best at shooting free throws, right? But uh, I had that muscle memory built up for bow hunting uh, from the time I first got my first bow to where. When I saw a deer, it, I didn't think about pulling back my bow. That was never even a thought. That was as soon as the opportunity for a shot came. I was pulling back and I was set on the deer and going back to what you said earlier, Alex, about, um, you know, just dialing in, getting a bow dialing in. Well, that's not muscle memory at that point. That's just being a good shot. And there's a, there's a big difference between being a good shot. You know, I'm a, I'm marginally good with my bow. Um, but I, I shoot a lot. Um, I'm not going to win shooting competitions, but I can guarantee you when a 160 inch, uh, 10 pointer comes walking by my stand I'm going to be cool and collected and be able to draw back and if that buck gives me a shot I'm going to shoot it just like how you said with sports think about how many people out there will use basketball that you're like man they could have been so good that was a waste of talent because yeah. they never practice yeah. same thing with deer hunting you can be a really good hunter a really good shot but if you're never practicing it's going to go to waste yeah. don't waste your potential people <laughs> don't do it <laughs> Oh, man. So actually, speaking of potential and achieving that, you shot a massive buck. Was it last year, the year before? Two years ago. Two years ago? Yes, the North Dakota buck. So I'm going to be posting, and by the time you guys read this, (laughs) I'll have posted this picture. But um, Alex shared a picture with me of this buck that you all hopefully have seen by now. Um, And this is the story that I want to hear. So share it with us well the story from this buck's actually pretty short because i didn't know he existed till i shot him um, <laughs> that's how it normally yeah. goes actually um but i'll just kind of run through the year so it was two years ago and there was a couple of bucks that i was hunting specifically and pretty much went all year and it didn't work out i had actually shot a buck in november that year and hit him in the shoulder and he didn't die he actually got shot the following year by somebody else so i know he lived um but it got to be late season out in North Dakota and North Dakota is very interesting because once you get some snow on the ground, deer just completely change their patterns. Everything's, they flock to food from literally miles. There's a guy out there that I know he documented, he had pictures of a buck in the fall and he ended up shooting him during late season that same year, 10 miles away. So it's a whole different game out there. And so I did some scouting and in North Dakota, um, anything that's not posted, you can hunt. And so I had found this piece of non-posted property that the farmer had forgot about. I don't know if he forgot or just didn't get to his corn or whatever. So there was a giant standing cornfield 
with a block of timber um, on each on kitty corner from each other on would have been the northeast and southwest corner and I was actually just going out to scout and when I got around this cornfield it was just beat to beat to crap I mean there was it was unreal sign and so I was like I probably should hunt here I mean no one's around and so I threw up a ground blind on um, a couple of intersecting trails I was leading from the timber into the cornfield and um, set up the ground blind and then went to hunt and actually it, it was kind of dicey because like I said I was only out there to scout and the wind chill this day I remember it vividly it was negative 42 and so it was I didn't have at that time I was using a heater bodysuit and I didn't have it with me so I didn't have all the proper clothing and I ended up sitting for like two and a half hours which when it's that cold it's, it's like quite a while and so um I was sitting there and I and it was down to about the last half hour a day, and I had only seen one doe. And I was thinking it was going to be a waste of a hunt and freezing my tail off. And all of a sudden, I looked over this little bit of a hill. Yes, there are hills in North Dakota. <laughs> um, and I see antlers coming at me. And then I see this big buck, and it was actually one that I knew that was in the area from a friend. And um, there was a whole bunch of deer behind them and then all these does started running up out of nowhere and long story short there was about 60 plus deer in this group flocking to this cornfield and so at that point i'm shaking crazy and i'm and i and i self-film everything so i've got my camera on the deer my bow in one hand and then i was trying to set my bow down and put my hands in my pocket and my i had you know like a hand muff on with just a ton of hand warmers in there and they were coming in I saw them from hundreds of yards away, and they're coming and coming. Well, then they kind of shift the way they're going to come, and so they're going to get downwind of me. And I was starting to kind of freak out at this point. You know, there's probably 20-plus does ahead of this buck. And so then I look to my right, and there's this other big buck, the one I ended up shooting, like 10 feet from me, just staring at me. (laughs) And so we kind of locked eyes. and I had no idea what to do. I was like, do I try to quickly try to pull my bow, you know? And so I kind of made just a slight move. And he bolted, and then I tried to grab my camera and almost smack it from it was pointed on these deer over here to on him. And as he ran, I pulled back, and he stopped and looked back at me, and he was quartering away. That was his mistake, and I guessed him at 30, let the arrow go, and went right right in the boiler maker. and he ran about 100 yards, ran right towards all the other deer, and dropped. And actually, after he dropped, I got out of the ground blind and sprinted to my truck <laughs> to warm up before I, before I could go uh, put my hands on him. So it was pretty cool. That's pretty neat. I probably would have gone and cut, cut them open and then stuck my hands. <laughs> Luke Skywalker style. Jumped into them. <laughs> That's crazy. That's a um, buck of a lifetime, or was that your best buck? He's not technically my biggest scoring buck, but he's... Coolest buck. He's probably my cool, his coolest hunt, and he's what he's my favorite buck, I definitely would say. Do you score all your, your bucks? I do, and when it comes to score, this is a, can be a whole other topic, yeah. but... People get so wrapped up in score and whatnot. I score all my deer, and I like to reference score just because if I'm talking with someone, he goes, yeah, there was a giant 10-pointer. A giant 10-pointer could be, you have no idea what he's talking about. But if he goes 150-inch 10-pointer, I, I can picture that in my head. If the guy knows what 150 inches is. That's a, <laughs> and, and that's a whole other topic. Yeah. People claiming they shot 200 inches yeah. when it was 160. But, yeah, so. 150 I, inches is huge. Yeah, so I, I do score all my bucks to answer the question. Um. You mentioned that you kind of guessed 30 yards. Yeah. Yeah. And there, I mean, there was nothing to range. I mean, I could have tried to pick dark spots in the snow, but it was just a, at that point, 
I didn't have time to range them. You know, right. I mean, that's well, that comes with experience, I think. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing, too. A lot of people just when you're sitting there just dilly dallying, I mean, on a sit, pick things in range. I mean, it wouldn't have applied in that situation as much. But in a lot of spots, you can pick a tree. All right. That's 25. I mean, I don't think I've ever actually ranged a deer before I shot him. It's all right. That tree was 28. He's a couple of you know, yards after that. He's probably at 32. You make your shot. So this is going to date me a little bit. But when I first started bow hunting, we had flaying tape. And we would get down, hang our stands, and we would flag out 20, 30, and 40 in, like, four or five different directions. So the first ribbon was 20, then 30, then 40. Um, because range finders existed, but they were really expensive. And, you know, it was, back then, it was uh, the choice between what kind of broadheads am I going to buy? You know, muzzies for 20 bucks at Walmart were a lot of money. So spending $300 on a rangefinder certainly wasn't an option. But that's another thing you can do too. You don't have to have a rangefinder. If you're hunting a spot, you know you're going to hunt it. When you hang your stand, the true distance is the distance from the base of your tree, not from where your your stand is hung. So the base of your tree to wherever you're going to shoot, you know, step off 20, 30, 40 yards, put a little ribbon up so you know, when that deer comes in, you're going to hit it, right? So Actually, my first year bow hunting, I didn't have a range finder either. And I was, you know, 15, and I was so OCD, I actually took and spray-painted in different colors trees. But instead of in a couple different directions, I, every freaking tree was spray-painted <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so, well, hey, that works too. Yeah. Never shot a deer from that sand, but... Hey, you learn, right? I, um, I guess range finders are an expense that some people when they're first starting out they probably might not buy right away so that's a good point if you're doing run and gun kind of method it is extremely important to have a range finder if you have a spot established just case it out put some rim it out you'll be just fine elk hunting i i'm gonna have a range finder but with whitetail you can get away with not having one so um so we had a couple questions actually that came in from instagram uh, shout out to one of our listeners, Brian Kern, for asking some great questions. Um, his questions are, what is your plan for hunting Minnesota this year? That's the first one. Um, and along with that is big woods, public public land, which we kind of covered. But um, And then traveling to a different area of the state, would you be, where are you going to hunt in Minnesota? Exactly. Where are you going to hunt? Um, I can probably grab GPS coordinates. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, I do, I'm going to be doing a mix of big woods, public land, and then city hunt. Um, I kind of just bounce around. It's all, I run a lot of cameras. Um, and with Minnesota stuff, I don't have really previous years data cause I didn't hunt Minnesota very hard the last four, three, four years. And so it'll be pretty much what's my win tonight and here's where I'm going to go hunt. Um, but it won't be any area, different areas of the state. It'll just be mainly within a half hour, 40 minutes of here. I will say for that question, um, Minnesota has some great public land. And in all the years that I've hunted public land in Minnesota, I've ran into very few other hunters. So if you're looking at a public land spot in Minnesota, go with your gut, pick out a spot, and go there, get a, a stand hung, and go hunt it. Don't be scared about bumping into other people because you probably won't until rifle season. I think specifically northern Minnesota is where you won't run into a lot of other hunters. I know that I have a, a, a girlfriend down in the cities area, so 
I don't know where she's exactly hunting, but public land down there. And she actually did run into other hunters. But, I mean, it happens, and yeah. it can happen in any public land hunt. Um, but you're kind of, you know, you're you're risking it, kind of. You know, there's a, there's always a chance. Risk. Yeah, right. I mean, if, you have, if you have an opportunity to scout out, you know, any public land, you know, num- number one thing I'd like to do is scout for people first. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things you can do to look where human pressure is. Yeah. And then, you know, avoid that if you can't tell from just picking a spot on a map. And then hunter's etiquette. If you see, uh, you know, don't yeah, don't steal trail ca- Obviously, don't steal any trail cameras. If you see yours, don't touch it. Right. If someone has already been there, you know, to hang a stand or whatnot, get out of their way. <laughs> One thing I will do if I see another person's trail camera is I'll walk in front of it and give them a big thumbs up. Because if I'm there, they're probably in a good spot. <laughs> I had a guy last year. He uh, had a trail camera on public land in North Dakota. I'm looking through pictures, and all of a sudden I see a picture of this phone in front of the camera. And the guy had wrote out a message for me on his iPhone notes, and he had a trail camera stolen. It was the same model as mine, and he was pretty much asking if I had stole it. Yeah. And he had put down his number, but he had had his thumb over kind of where his number was. He didn't realize, so I couldn't call him. Well, if he's out there. Yeah, but my camera was never stolen, so clearly he didn't think it was me. But that's... I mean, that's proper etiquette. I mean, that's someone just, hey, I hunt around here at a camera stolen. Here's my number type of thing. So Smart guy, actually. It's a good idea. Time out, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, the next questions, or a few questions here. Um, when looking for a place to hunt out of state, um, what's the first thing that you look for? So it depends, I guess, what you're going for. If you're going to try to hunt mature bucks or trophy bucks, um, I don't do this, but I know a lot of people that, you know, will look in the record books for counties on where to go and stuff. Um, I don't necessarily do that. I kind of just pick um, an area of a state that I want to hunt, whether that be, usually there's so many places you get information, whether that be you reach out on a forum, um, you reach out just on Facebook. There's so many groups out there when people will give you so much information. I mean, I literally know guys that have called gas stations in certain towns. I mean, so once you just pick in an area of a state isn't hard, but once you pick that area... And then it's just, I'll spend hours on, on, on X and I mean, just scouring where I think are good spots. And then depending how far away you are, or if you have the ability to pre-scout, I mean, that can be invaluable. If you can have, let's say 10 spots picked out on a map and in the spring, walk every single one of them and then pin that down to three spots. And then you can, you've got so many more options on good spots to actually focus on. For all you turkey hunters out there, too, a springtime deer scouting is a great time to turkey hunt. You can do both at the same time. So what I like to do in around here is if I'm turkey hunting public land, I will also be scouting for deer. Great time to do it. You can find a lot of spots. So, And you can also find some sheds around that time, too. And you can shoot some turkeys and find some sheds. Yep, shoot turkeys, find sheds. Perfect. And a good point, too, just on that really quick, is with the amount of public land, a lot of people are looking for those giant chunks. I mean, some of my best spots, especially in North Dakota, are just these small little blips on a map that I, the reason I went there is because I know pretty much everyone would gloss over it. I mean, my best spot out in North Dakota, probably one of one of the good spots, is we've had multiple booners on camera every year. I mean, our first year out there, my buddy Tyler shot a 180-inch buck, and I mean, it's literally, I've never seen another hunter out there since 2015. I mean, and it's driving by it on the road even you'd look at it and go eh you know I mean it's nothing but 
it holds a lot of deer and a lot of mature bucks. So, like, go with what you know and then throw it out. <laughs> kind oh, absolutely. of. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, well, um, deer, okay, you see hunting shows. We talked about that earlier. Hunting shows, deer don't always inhabit those areas that you see on hunting shows. A lot of times you'll see people hunting in, like, northern Missouri or, you know, southern Iowa, southeast Iowa. They're in these big oak groves and it's wide open. It looks just beautiful. It looks like a park. Right, but what they don't tell you is that they're in the only chunk of woods, uh, and they've got cornfields and alfalfa fields on each side, and the only place those deer can go is through that that funnel. That is, that if you have access to that, that's great. But don't pass up spots because they look, you know, shrubby or, or you know they don't look they don't have big tall oaks or anything like that. You know, hunt the spots that you know deer are going to bed in, feed in, water in, and just want to hang out in. Amen, brother. Well, I mean. I get really irritated at people that try to learn off of only hunting shows. I'm not saying hunting shows don't have validity, but those hunting shows are there to, they're exactly what they are. They're a show, and they're going to be hunting places that are going to give them the best opportunity for where they're filming. Well, and with that, I totally agree, but there are so many even YouTube channels out there now with guys that are just busting their butt, just like that are pretty much an everyday hunter, but they have really solid content. I mean, that they're out there just like you and me they just have a camera on their talk and their videos might not be like the greatest or highly produced but they've got a lot of good content and they it's, it might be more efficient or productive for you to watch that than say in watching a show on the outdoor channel you know that's a good point um and you have a few videos on your website on your blog uh-huh. is that correct so what what types of videos or content can people expect you know to see on your site yeah, so I do quite a bit of video work too. I self-film all my hunts, and before it was kind of the standard, just trying to get up videos of, you know, the years past hunts and stuff. But now I've kind of developed into more of just vlogging and trying to keep everyone up to date with what I'm doing right now. And so this fall, especially, it'll be you'll see a lot of video content, but it'll be one to two videos a week of here's what I was doing this week, here's what's working right now, here's what's going on, here's what's not working right now. Um, so a lot of that, I mean. It's a lot of talking to the camera because it's just me. I don't have anyone filming with me, but I film all my hunts, and it'll be a lot of just keeping everyone up to date on, you know, kind of like the semi-live format. What do you What do you typically use to film your hunts? Is it a full camera? Is it a GoPro? What type of equipment do you use? So I have a few different cameras. I've got a Canon G30, which is a, you know, full video camera, and then I have a DSLR that I do a lot for my second angle and um, B-roll before, and then I also have run a couple GoPros too. So I try to capture as much as I can. That's awesome. So obviously you have your, your blog and whatnot, but talk about a little of your outdoor writing. I know you said you were publishing a few different magazines and you know, where do you, where do you want to go in the outdoor industry? Cause I feel like it's a valid question cause oh, you're yeah. doing a lot for, you know, for peeps in the industry. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, it's the first part of that question outdoor writing is kind of what got my start i mean i had my first article published in bow hunter um when i was 19 and so it's kind of like then i thought i wanted to be an outdoor writer like you know full-time for like magazines and stuff i quickly realized that's not as attainable because that means you're pumping out a lot a lot a lot a lot of long articles um but the second part the ultimate goal would be to turn the combination of whitetail DNA and freelancing into my full-time, my full-time job. And so that's through 
working with companies and, you know, getting sponsors and I'm working with some now and it's, it's a fine line to cr- because a lot of people that get into the outdoor industry for the wrong reasons and they just want to get sponsored by anybody. And I want to work with companies that I truly trust and that I can get behind and not just, I want to keep the same partner year after year and not be like a lot of out. I mean, there's the business side is so much different than the hunting side, but a lot of those, a lot of companies and people are just going for the highest bidder every year. And I want to kind of be able to, I think a lot of people can't trust what comes out of people's mouths, which is unfortunate because even a lot of people that have these sponsors that are changing every year that are required to do certain things, they still are knowledgeable people. Um, and so the long, the best I can do is just keep the trust with people and partner with the best companies that I feel possible. And that might mean taking longer, but ultimately the goal is to do that full time. I think, um, you're on the right track. I mean, I definitely think that keeping authentic to yourself, like remaining who you are and to your core values in pretty much everything you do as far as in the industry goes. I mean, I'm kind of just starting out in the industry as well. Um, but I think people can respect you a lot more when you're not just, you know, promoting every brand or, you know, you're kind of getting behind products you actually believe in and that you actually think will benefit other people, you know, so. Yeah, I totally agree. And not, this isn't like to try to toot my own horn or anything, but I mean, I've already turned down a lot of companies because A, I had no clue what they were, B, I would never use them for real. And so I'm not, you don't want to turn into that person that just picks up A, A, B, and C because they're going to give you money. Because when you get, if anyone that wants to get into the industry, if you're listening to this or whatnot, it can be really hard to say no when someone says, I will pay you to do this and you're getting paid not to hunt, but hunting is a product of that. And so being able to say no and being able to stay true to what you actually believe in that genuine can be difficult for some people. And there's no, like, like you said, it might take a little longer. Pretty much people who like authentically built their brand or built something within the industry have taken time. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight and there's no like quick, like, you know, shot to fame or whatever. What fame might not be what be what you're looking for, obviously, but you know, it's, it's a part of the industry. Yeah, so I mean, it's a, this is a much broader topic and larger issue, but it's almost with just the instant gratification of everybody now, mm-hmm. whether it be that or their work life, whether it not be hunting, anything is that instant gratification. But if you want to build something that's really solid and quality it's you got to see the long end game not the trying to get money tomorrow you're speaking my language (laughs) that's what i'm trying so yeah i mean me and phil with this podcast it's it's honestly it's it's fun and we don't make any money off it you know at this point you know so but we do it because we want to and we want to help people you know be excited about hunting fishing outdoors you know and hopefully try and educate along the way so and and just going off what you guys were saying you know i i shot my first buck in 99 right how old were you guys in 99 four and seven seven okay so my point is is that no matter what you do and you know how many products you you are endorsed by and things like that way more people know who you two are than me and i've been doing this for a lot longer 
but that doesn't mean that I'm better. So no matter who you are and what you want to do, if you get into it and you follow your dreams and just stay true to who you are, you're going to be successful with it. And just how you said that you're not any better. And just because we have more people that quote unquote know who we are, or we have a platform doesn't mean we're any better than you. Exactly. Exactly. So. It's, it's funny that you say that because the other day I had this, this guy reach out to me on, on Instagram and you know, I try to be real on my Instagram. So, you know, I, I have fun with it, whatever. But he said to me, he's like, Hey, thanks for liking like some of my photos and things. And he's like, it's really cool to have someone like of your caliber liking my, in the outdoor industry, liking my stuff. And I, I'd never thought of myself like that. And I was like, Whoa, dude, you're doing some pretty awesome stuff too. Like his, his fishing videos are awesome. Like he's catching all these huge fish. And I'm like, I have nothing on you, dude. Like you're, you're awesome. But it's just crazy that the perception is the way it is. And you know, like I use my platform, hopefully I'm trying to do it for good. You know, I, and I, I feel like you're doing the same. So I don't know. It's crazy. It's funny. Cause kind of similar to you. I had a guy email me probably in the springtime and he sent me, um, it was like a long email. I mean, pretty much gave me the whole, his whole background and his hunting life and ended with, is there any way I can come hunt with you? And I was like, it kind of took me off off by surprise and so then i was like all right i kind of looked him up and looked at his his facebook and stuff and the dude had shot so many big bucks i mean he was just putting them down i mean and i'm like he shot so many more bucks than i have why does he want to come hunt with me you know and so i i didn't really get that but it's just because you got a platform people set perception when well, and you write about it and yeah. you know you're good about writing about helping people like both you and Allie are both genuine you're not doing it to have everybody you know just grovel at your feet right you're doing it because you want to actually help people get into the outdoors and do it and because you're doing that people look up to you and I respect that a lot you know because it's it's one thing to be go out there and do it it's another thing to do it and be able to tell people genuinely how to how to do it themselves right well and I feel like this is a, a different topic than, than whitetail in general, but I feel like it's all relative. Um, but for me, I definitely, um, I, f I feel like I'm just sharing the lifestyle. And I think that especially for women to see kind of both sides, like I can be both, I can be like feminine and also hunt. And it's kind of one of those things that I don't know. I feel like some women think that you have to be one or the other or, some, you know, like some people think like, oh, they're, you know, super outdoorsy. Well, they're not fashionable or, you know what I'm saying? Like for me, like I worked in fashion for like almost four years. So yeah, I'm like, I like fashion, but I also like hunting. So it's interesting. Like yeah. I just want to show that so that people know that they can do that too if they want. Yeah. So you know, this interview or this conversation kind of took a little turn, but you know, I think it's all good. It's all good stuff. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, you know, sharing your knowledge and tell us again where everyone can find you on your social channels and on your website. Yeah. Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for having me on. And, um, uh, you can just find anything at whitetaildna.com. That's where all my social is too, except for my Instagrams, whitetail underscore DNA. But otherwise, if you go to the website, you'll find links to everything there. So, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so, um, thanks for tuning in to Empower Outdoors, and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, everybody. <laughs>